quite unusually, I want to spend most of our time um, reading you an ancient letter written in uh, AD 96, uh, just in the last few weeks of the reign of the tyrannical Roman emperor Domitian. That may be up front. It's a fiction. But it is mainly based on truth and at the risk of sounding rather like um, Dan Brown of the Da Vinci Code, um, uh, uh, let me say most of the, or all of the public events that are referred in, uh, to in this letter um, happened and we know that they happened and uh, some of the more private events are perhaps a little bit more uh, imaginative. But I want to use this device to try to get us into the minds and into the world of uh, Rome after uh, the end of the book of Acts. To ask ourselves the question, what lasting legacy did Jesus leave behind? What lasting legacy was there actually left behind that lasted after the end of the book of Acts. Let's pray, ask God to uh, speak to our hearts and then I'll read you the letter. Heavenly Father, as we have engaged with the story so far, that uh, Luke has told us. We pray that you'll help us to engage with um, issues of abiding significance for us. We ask, Lord, that you will speak to our hearts and you will help us to really think through what you're calling us to be as your people, where you're calling us as individuals and as a people together. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. From Titus Flavius Clemens, Consul of the ancient city of Rome, to Luke, my dear brother in the Lord, greetings and peace to you in Jesus Christ. I write this letter to you in deep gratitude and in the desire that you should know what your two wonderful historical works have done in this city and in my life in particular. I write on what I expect to be the last day of my life. But I know that you and I will meet at the resurrection of the dead. My story begins more than 30 years ago. I am from a mighty and noble family. I am a relative of the last three emperors of Rome, Vespasian, Titus and now our present ruler Domitian. But 36 years ago, I was a young man of 21 years. We were living then through terrible times. Emperor Nero was becoming more and more cruel, more chaotic, more murderous. It was at that time that I met one of the most important men in my life. The Roman nobleman named Gaius Justus. 
He was grateful to you that when you wrote to him your public letter all those years ago, you addressed him discreetly as Theophilus. And I will call him that. Theophilus was of a lower rank than me, but nevertheless I and my family held him in high esteem. He was a man of dignity and poise. He was known as a man well versed in ancient wisdom. We'd heard rumours that he worshipped foreign gods, but we simply knew him as a good and kind man. One evening I went to his villa and he told me an extraordinary story. Perhaps you know it already, but I must set it down nonetheless. Theophilus told me that 30 years before that when he too was a young man he was a seeker after truth. He read widely anything which might uh, help him. His family had a wise senior slave who was a Jew. This uh, Jewish man introduced him to the Jewish writings, the law, the histories and Theophilus was struck by the grandeur and simplicity of one true God, creator and sustainer of all. He was impressed by the ancient moral codes of the Jews. He became what the Jews call a God-fearer. Theophilus had a problem, however. Most of the Jews in Rome, of whom there were many, were poor and despised, living in the roughest part of the city. To go to their synagogue was more than his reputation was worth, for he was a high-born man. But he found then the synagogue of Elias, There, the wealthiest Roman Jews worshipped. There, they spoke Latin, not Greek. There, he found a group with whom he could associate without too much stigma. And every Sabbath, Theophilus went to hear the word of God. A few years later, however, Events began to unfold which further changed Theophilus' life. A group of Jews from that synagogue had been away visiting Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost and they returned with an extraordinary story. They told the story that you, Luke, know so well. The story of Jesus of Nazareth, of his uh, life, and works and teachings of his crucifixion, of his resurrection. And most amazingly, they said that at that feast, the Feast of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit had descended on Jesus' first disciples so that those uneducated artisans began speaking many languages, including Latin. These returning converts came to Theophilus' synagogue and insisted that all Jews must now worship 
Jesus. And there was uproar. Bitter disputes broke out. Violence even. And Theophilus, that uh, high-minded seeker after truth, was disappointed. He was now unwilling to associate with these increasingly fractious Jews and he went to that synagogue no more. But he was still curious. It was years after that, as you know, that he finally heard of you, dear Luke. He was fascinated that you, like him, were a Gentile and yet you had become a follower of this Jew named Jesus. Your reputation, Luke, as a man of learning and integrity prompted him to write and your long monograph on the life of Jesus that you sent back to him changed his life. As he read your treatise on Jesus' life, his first impression was extremely unfavourable. It didn't seem right that God Most High, the glorious ruler over all, should have his son born into poverty and obscurity to an unmarried woman. More than that, he was deeply disturbed by the observation that this wasn't uh, just an accident. No, this was, your, uh, this was God's concerted plan. Mary claimed that God always puts down the proud and lifts up the, uh, the humble. Theophilus wondered about himself. As he read on, that theme was repeated again and again. Jesus' manifesto was to preach good news to the poor. He pronounced woe on those who were rich. His converts were lunatics, cripples, lepers, prostitutes. How could Theophilus associate with a man like this? But there was something captivating about Jesus too. As Jesus walked through these, amongst these scum of the earth, touching, healing, welcoming, comforting, Theophilus told me that in his sumptuous villa he found himself longing for this man's approval, for this man's touch. His heart leapt for a moment when he read of a Roman centurion whom Jesus himself congratulated for his faith. Maybe him too. He was honest that he almost stopped reading when he, heard, when he uh, read Jesus saying, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow. What sort of a life was that for a Roman nobleman? Of course it was a metaphor, but it was the most disgusting one imaginable. Crucifixion, of course, is reserved for slaves and non-citizens of Rome. No Roman citizen could ever be crucified. 
So surely someone like Theophilus couldn't contemplate a life described as taking up his cross daily. That was far beneath him. Somehow he told me he couldn't help but read on. And when he read the story of the lost son, the prodigal son, he broke. In the story, that foolish young man who took his father's inheritance and squandered it was welcomed back. And Theophilus thought of himself once he had been a God-fearer, but now, in the midst of riches and honour in Roman society, he felt as lost and needy as that reckless son who became so poor he was envied by the pigs. For Theophilus had walked away from God. He wept and wept, he said, as he saw the father welcoming that lost son home. The father clothing him. The father feeding him and loving him and celebrating. Theophilus prayed that night to the God of Jesus Christ that he would welcome him home. The very next, next day he went out to find some of that disruptive new breed of people that they were starting to call Christians. And Theophilus' story didn't end there. Far from it. Theophilus sought out a couple whom you know, Luke, Priscilla and Aquila, high-born Jews who belonged years ago to that Latin-speaking synagogue. But now they were hosting a Christian church in their home. For a few years Theophilus lived quietly as a Christian amongst the Jews. But finally the disruption caused by the uh, non-Christian Jews became so violent that Emperor Claudius expelled all the Jews, Christian and non-Christian, from Rome. And Theophilus was left bereft with a handful of other Gentile Christians to maintain the witness in that great city. Bravely he took the lead. He allowed the church to worship in his house and one by one many new converts were made. Over the next few years the Jews gradually returned and despite many difficulties the church in Rome grew and diversified and thrived. It was about that time that I, Clemens, went to see Theophilus. As I said, there were rumours about him associating with undesirables, engaging in dubious secret practices, but I just knew him as a wise and gentle old man and he told me the story I've just repeated to you. 
He told me how your life of Jesus had helped him. He also told me that actually for a long time as a Christian, he had remained confused on some points. Should Christianity always be Jewish? Or could Gentiles worship Jesus without all that Jewish paraphernalia? He was also troubled by the way that Christianity was being treated with increasing suspicion by the Roman authorities. Was it really anti-Roman? He had at that time recently received your second work, Luke, describing how the Gospel came to Rome. It helped him to understand how Christianity was built on Jewish foundations, but it didn't need to look Jewish in Rome. Christ could be worshipped in every culture in different ways. He was reassured that great Christians like Peter had uh, slowly been brought to realise that. He was encouraged too, Brother Luke, about how you carefully recorded the verdicts of Roman authorities, most especially Gallio in Corinth, who said, Rome need not be treated as an illegal religion. He used that second book a lot with his Roman friends. Theophilus told me that I should investigate Jesus for myself. Despite the suspicions of others, I could be a good Roman and a good Christian. He gave me a copy of both of your works. But I confess I didn't read them at the time. I was becoming embroiled in Roman politics, especially trying to control the growing excesses of Nero. Just a few years later, a fire, which I'm still convinced was started by Nero himself, ripped through the heart of Rome. The people were in uproar and Nero, in order to give the crowds the blood they were baying for, seized large numbers of Christians and condemned them to die in the, uh, the arena. I heard that they came to Theophilus' villa because he was harbouring many Christians there. He himself was too high born to be an easy victim but he would not let the cohort of Roman soldiers into his villa. He insisted that instead he be taken personally to Nero. When they left, the Christians slipped away and were saved. But Theophilus must have known what was coming to him. Nero was planning a party for his friends. He had... Theophilus and dozens of others lashed to stakes in his garden. Then as the uh, guests arrived, he set them alight and forced the guests to admire the garden in the light of their burning bodies. There were friends of mine who were there that night. They were filled with repulsion sympathy for those Christians. They say that Nero laughed like a madman. But Theophilus prayed for the city. 
And now, dear Luke, more than 30 years have elapsed since those fateful fateful events. During that time, I devoted myself to doing good through politics. My relatives, Vespasian, Titus, rules reasonably well, but now my other relative, Domitian, has come to power and increasingly in the last few years, he has become cruel and despotic. In a moment of despair... Just a few years ago, I took up your two books and began to read of Jesus. To cut a long story short, Luke, what happened to Theophilus happened to me. And I am also delighted to say to my dear wife, Flavia Domitilla, quietly and discreetly we found some fellow Christians and we began worshipping with them. There are many here in Rome, Luke, or from all strata of society. But in these difficult days we must be careful. As I write to you, I am consul of Rome. I am the leader of the Senate. I am the highest official in the empire after after uh, Domitian. But I feel called by the Lord to do my greatest and probably my final act of service for him. Domitian has announced that he intends to present to the Senate a bill for the extermination of all Jews and Christians and I can stay quiet no longer. Tomorrow I will tell the Emperor that I too am a Christian. When you read this letter, I will almost certainly be dead. But even in death, I may be able to help. The appointment of a new consul takes time. So the Senate will not be able to pass that law. And I have heard whispers that assassination plots are afoot. Perhaps my death will stay Domitian's hand long enough for the assassins to do their terrible work. As for me, dear Luke, I am eternally grateful that you wrote your two books. Tonight I am filled with joy and confidence. The Christian church in this city has grown and grown despite deep suspicion and waves of terrible persecution. And I have discovered what it is like to be human. On the streets of Rome, I walk around as consul, covered in pomp and glory, but empty. In our precious church, I'm a man. A man alongside fellow men and women who are slaves and freedmen and Greeks and Alexandrians and Africans and Gauls. A man who is forgiven by God. A man who is a follower of Jesus Christ. A man who is assured of resurrection life. Tomorrow, 
I surrender my consulship and probably my life but I lose nothing. My dear Luke, we shall meet. We shall embrace. Then face to face, I shall say what now I must just say in a letter. Thank you. Well, I say that letter is a fiction. But Clemens was real. He was consul of Rome. His sons were actually picked out by Domitian to be his successors. And he was executed by Domitian for beliefs that many people consider were Christian beliefs. Just a few weeks later actually, Clemens' own chief servant stabbed Domitian to death. Archaeologists have uh, discovered his villa in Rome and underneath his villa is a carved out cave which is one of the earliest Christian burial sites. Many people as well think Theophilus was also in Rome though we have no firm evidence for it. Nero's persecutions were every bit as terrible as that letter described and we know for, for certain as well that despite all of those persecutions and the suspicion of the church. The church in Rome thrived and it thrived amongst all kinds of people, rich and poor, high-born and slaves and they worshipped together. In a society where there were such divisions between rich and poor, it was the most extraordinarily radical thing that they did. They gathered together as brothers and sisters in Christ. From time to time, they had to be prepared to die together too. That's the legacy of the first 60 years after Jesus' death. A church that had extraordinary problems and yet made the most extraordinary progress to think that a provincial Jew in a minor territory of the Roman Empire should have such influence that even those who were nominated as future emperors were under the influence of the gospel. 
what legacy did, is there today? Ben? What legacy amongst us? Let me just quickly ask you three questions that I want to encourage you to think about in house groups, to pray about for yourself. First question. How do I measure up as a true worshipper of Jesus Christ? Now let, let me be very, very clear. Um, of course we will all be sitting here as people who are in awe of some of the things that previous generations have had to endure. But in some of those characteristics that Jesus set out. How do I measure up? When Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come to preach good news to the poor. Many who are first will be last. Theophilus and Clemens and many others like them had to re-evaluate their lives. Because as Jesus said, when he sat at that Pharisee's table, do you remember, and saw people all clamouring to be at the top of the table, he said, no, 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 you will only be humbled. Come to the bottom of the table and let the master move you up. Why someone who comes to Jesus like that? How do I measure up as a true worshipper of Jesus? Second question. Am I committed to reaching others for Christ? Jesus came as a missionary to reach many who were far off. The book of Acts was empowered by the Spirit to go out. They were filled with joy by the Spirit so that they could not help but reach out to others. We're not all evangelists but we belong to a body whose lifeblood is reaching out to others and we're just beginning this fortnight of um, uh, where we're particularly focused on that and uh, It would be fair to say that at the moment not all the signs are positive amongst us. There are really good things happening. Really good things have already happened. But uh, are you committed to think of a friend who you can invite to the Eric Petrosian play? It's very easy very low threat. John Lennox is a great 
speaker and a very stimulating speaker on a very current debate responding to uh, Richard Dawkins' the, the God delusion. Um, I don't want to make you feel totally guilty but um, uh, we have taken the wild guess, it has to be said, or sta- a step of faith that it will be sufficiently um, uh, interesting to people that we'll get more than a hundred people coming and we decided that we're not going to then fit them in the church building. We have um, decided uh, to book the bingo hall for it. Not that we're expecting 500 to come but it would be a deep disappointment if we had less than a hundred. Hands up, who's, who's intending to come uh, to that? Um, I'm not convinced that we're going to... Thank you, hands can go down. I'm not certain as to whether those numbers will come. Now, let, let me say then that... that uh, there may be all sorts of very, very good reasons for, uh, for that. And uh, our witness is not just about what happens in the next couple of weeks. But we stand in the place as successors of the most extraordinary people. Following on from the most extraordinary events that God did amongst his people. Has God caught us yet? Has the Holy Spirit grabbed us? Are we committed to praying? And a third question. Will my whole life be with Jesus and resurrection life as my central delight. Will my delight in Jesus and will my longing for resurrection life be what drives me? At the end of Luke's Gospel, when they met the risen Jesus, they could not believe for joy. At Pentecost, when the disciples were overwhelmed with joy, they were struck by the Holy Spirit, they were overwhelmed with joy and praised God. When Peter and John were arrested and placed in prison in the book of Acts, they were rejoiced that they'd been considered worthy of suffering for the gospel. When Paul was arrested, he sang hymns. When Stephen testified to his faith, we're told, his face looked like an angel. When Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 was was uh, converted, he was overwhelmed with, by delight in God and praised him. In Acts, the world is evangelised, the world is changed because people are transfixed with an all-consuming delight in God and Jesus Christ and an, in, uh, 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 an unstoppable appetite for eternal life and they cannot help but move forward and declare their faith and live joyfully. 
And as I've tried to show in that uh, letter, that continued for decade after decade after decade, for century after century indeed. And we are the inheritors of that life, that message. So what legacy will you leave behind? Or let me put it in a slightly another way, another way. Will you pick up the baton? Will you be part of that wonderful transmission that goes from Jesus to Luke to Theophilus to Clements to someone else to someone else to you? Let's pray. Perhaps you just need, before God, to ask God what he needs to do in each one of our lives to move us forward, to make us more like the appropriate inheritors of this legacy.